the more diverse your microbiome, the healthier your microbiome is, which is an interesting concept because your microbiome is an ecosystem, like a rainforest. And biodiversity in any ecosystem is a sign of health. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Good afternoon, Erica. Good late morning to you. Whatever. <laughs> time anymore. No, it feels like I've been up for a very long time because I have. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. Welcome back to Brooklyn. I am just in town for a couple days back in La Route. Um, I needed to come back from the escape shelter to get a few provisions. And I'm, I know that it's like hard being in New York and people are definitely rightfully frustrated and anxious being here. And I totally respect that. I'm really happy just to be in a different environment for a couple of days. And I'm sure by like the end of this week, I will be ready to escape. But for now, oh, I was really hoping to see you in person and at least give you like an air high five from across the room. But that's will have to wait. Just like it's, uh, it's busy. It's a busy time. It's a busy time. It feels like it's everyone's busier than they were because now you don't have to commute anywhere. So you just like fill up the time. Well, yeah. People are still working. There's now having to like homeschool, all, you know, all that, all that raw. We're not out of the woods yet. We're, it's like May 12th. So we are, I mean, we're not going to be out of the woods for a long time, but mm-hmm. thankfully it's not like, the insane, incessant, like, ambulance sirens that I feel like I've been listening to in Brooklyn for a while now. So yeah. I feel like things have loosened up or loosened up slightly, which is good. Um, I'm talking about Corona, if anyone doesn't know that. Yeah. If you are living under a rock. I don't think anybody doesn't know. Okay. Well, I don't know. I can't keep up. Somebody just told me, it's like, oh my God, the new, like, strain or whatever we're calling it, uh, from, like, the, to- the toddler yeah. deaths, like... I didn't keep up with that. <laughs> so it's yeah, definitely a lot to take in. It is a lot. Um, anyway, we're doing our best. We're trying to stay healthy. Announce of prevention. Isn't that what it is? Announce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Build up our immunity. And who better to talk to about immunity than Dr. Dr. Will B. Bolshewitz. Bolshewitz. It's hard. It doesn't look like it sounds. No, there's a lot of consonants in there. Um, but he, uh, he is a gastroenterologist. Um, and as we know, and as we've learned, uh, a good portion of your immune system is in your gut. So he's definitely a great resource to talk to about all of this immunity conversation. And we, it was a really, it was a great chat. He's got a new book called Fiber Fueled, um, which actually just came out this week. And so that's like an exciting... It's exciting and it's also kind of disheartening to know how many people still are not fully aware of the benefits of fiber on your gut and how sad the American intake of fiber really is. <laughs> you sad Americans and your fiber intake. Well, it's something like, you know, the bare minimum that we're supposed to take, that we're supposed to consume is like, it's like either 15 or 20 grams and most Americans actually don't even get that far. And then in the meantime, there are like tribes in Africa that are consuming over 100 grams of fiber on a daily basis. Right. And a wide variety of foods. But he actually, he doesn't like the name of the book. He doesn't think that Fiber Fueled is an accurate title because it really doesn't have to do, I mean, it has to do with fiber obviously, but it's really more about the gut health connection. And fiber obviously plays a part in that, but he's great to um, uh, to sort of dig into the immunity subject with, and it's quite topical at the moment. So, as always, hopefully you'll take something away. Enjoy. Sounds good. Have a listen, Doctor Will B. So we're <laughs> going to talk about your book and your whole mission around fiber fueling, right? Because I mean, of all things, right now we're going to talk about immunity and gut health and how the two are linked and. 
were. Well, your latest book, yeah, you came out with fiber fuel, but it sounds like it's a lot more than about fiber. Oh, it's, it's about so much more than fiber. It's about optimization of the gut. Yeah. You know, and so we call it, we call it fiber fueled because if the gut is the engine that drives human health, then what do you want to put into the, into the engine that drives human health? You want to put in the premier fuel, like the optimal fuel. And we have scientific study after scientific study that says to us that this is it. And it's not, you know, when, when we say fiber, just to be clear for your audience, I'm not talking about like Metamucil and the orange stuff that my grandma used to stir up so she could poop. You know, I'm talking about real food. Right. Real food. So, and I think that it is relevant right now. Um, you know, and, and that's not me trying to um, like shoehorn my book into what's actually happening in our country right now. But as a medical doctor, if I were to advise people, like, what do you do right now? You know, I see people like reaching for a bazillion supplements or whatever it may be, you know, elderberry or vitamin D or like the sauna. Took that today, took that today. Yeah, and that's, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But you can't, you have to understand, like, you can't take a, and I'm not saying you personally, Zoe, but you can't take a, a C minus immune system and turn it into an A by taking some supplements. Yeah, you can right? start with a better baseline. That's a shitty diet. So you exactly, and you need to. So you need to fortify the entire system, right? So what we see right now is that we're building. We're in the process now. That we're like, oh, I'm not sorry about that. Sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify, because we kind of rolled in. But you're a gastroenterologist, and so this is your entire domain is what's going on between our belly button and our butt, basically. <laughs> <laughs> in our noose. So like, Fair enough. Yes, that is my expertise. <laughs> I have, so I'm a gastroenterologist. I'm also board certified as an internist. And then I have a background in epidemiology, So, which makes it kind of interesting for me because of what's happening right now with the virus. And you know, it, what you see is that on all levels, we're trying to fortify, right? Like, we're, am, I, am I allowed to use profanity on the show or no? Of course. Okay. Yeah. So we're all like, oh, shit, this is real. Yeah. We have to adapt. Okay. And so we're in the process of putting, you know, defense mechanisms in place. And so you fortify on a national level, you fortify on a local level. Within your own house, you're doing things to try to protect yourself, right? And the same is true within your body. We want to fortify our body. We want to make it prepared to handle a disease. And that doesn't necessarily mean more immune system. That means optimal immune system. Because more isn't necessarily better. An excessive immune response is actually a very bad thing. In fact, in fact, that's what can, for young people like us, be critical. That that can actually lead to us crashing and burning is you, if you have an excessive immune response. So can you so talk what, actually a little bit more? Can we talk a little bit more in detail about that? Yeah, what would be an example of that? So I went through my internal medicine residency. I was at Northwestern in Chicago. I was the chief resident there. And you do the ICU rotation. And you see these people come in and sometimes they're young, like sometimes they're our age, honestly. So you guys are, I'm guessing at least 15 or 20 years younger than me and I'm 39 Obviously. years old. So, um, <laughs> but you see young people who come in and they're sick and the, let me paint the picture for everyone, uh, just for a moment here. It, a young person who is like basically mumbling, incapable of answering questions, doesn't know where they are, or what their own name is. Um, their eyes are rolling back in their head. They're breathing super fast, like 30 times a minute. Um, high fever, and you go and you put a blood pressure cuff on them, and you can't get a blood pressure. And so this is the picture of a person with an overwhelming infection, and we call this sepsis. And where this is going is a person who is like, that, that rolls in the door in the emergency room as quickly as possible. We want to get antibiotics into that person and we want to get them upstairs and on a ventilator and they need it. They need the ventilator. They need medication to raise their blood pressure because their heart is not able to keep up with what their body needs. Now, is that 100% the infection that does that? No, that's actually the immune system getting overly activated and creating something that is a um, expression that sounds kind of cool, but it's not cool when it happens in real life which is a cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a cytokine storm is the idea of the immune system just like, boom, exploding like all at once. And this, is, and this is what you get when you have this excessive immune response is you get septic shock. And that infection should not kill that young person, but it's the immune system and the way that it reacts to the infection that actually can kill that young person. And 
you you attack the infection, but at the same time, what you need to do is you need and there, you can't like stop the immune system in its tracks. You can many times we will actually give these patients steroids to reduce the immune system, which is kind of crazy to think about because they're fighting infection. Yeah, but it, what you need to do is you need to support their body and allow them to basically ride out the storm. Okay, so that's so that's an example of, of an excessive. And by support the body, what I mean is, I mean you put the breathing tube in, you take control of their breathing, you get their blood pressure up. So we have medications that are called pressors that you would basically infuse through a special IV called the central line. You can't just put a peripheral IV in; you actually have to put a special IV in to do this. You get that central line in place, you know, ideally within thirty minutes, and you start pouring fluids and pressors into this person as quickly as you can. And you're just trying to get them through 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that as time passes, that the body starts to cool off. And then for the people who do well, which is frankly, in a 25-year-old, the majority of people, because the best thing they have going for them is they're 25. And so for the people who do well, we're able to get them to the other side. Now, the issue with this virus that is circulating right now... and Sorry, we're talking specifically about the coronavirus, just in case time passes, no one knows. Yeah, well, I can assure you that to refer to it as the virus, but yes, the- <laughs> right. Okay, so in case someone is in the uh, looking back like five years from now, and this is in the, one of the greatest, most downloaded episodes in the history, obviously, of totally. Yeah, yeah. So the COVID nineteen virus, the you know the issue or the concern in young people is this. And if you actually listen to what's happening, there's a little bit of a misconception out there that only older people need to worry about this. Mm-hmm. And that's not true because it, actually, if you look in Italy right now where all hell is breaking loose and it's like a war zone, and I pray, by the way, that when this podcast comes out that that has not happened to us here in the United States, but if we don't manage things properly, it, it really very well may. And at this point, we would be, I mean, not that we're going to turn this into a Corona episode, but I mean, it's pretty hard to avoid because it's yeah, touching. We're talking about most likely two weeks out from now. So yeah, and well, and I think and I think in in these times, it's very it's very relevant. Like, if we're going to talk about my book, let let me talk to you about how I I think that my book like actually is very relevant to everything that's happening with the coronavirus right now. And it's and again, not me trying to insert this artificially. Like, th- this is the actual truth, and you'll see it as we lay this out through this podcast. Yeah, I think it's actually very, it serves as very good context for us to talk about the things that we want to hit today, which is diet, immunity, inflammation, how all these things work together in protecting us, our microbiome. And also the value of preventative steps rather than reactive steps. I mean, I think that's, I mean, one message that I feel like we try to drive home all the time is like, we want to encourage people to do all the things in advance so that they don't end up needing care. And, you know, to your point, like diet and exercise are things that keep you on the right track so that you don't, so, so that it's more, it's proactive and it's not reactive. 100% body optimization should start today. If you, if you try to do these things that we're going to talk about during this episode, you know, in the moment that you spike a fever, right. you miss the opportunity. Right. So, but if you do this now, the more time that you actually invest and the more of a concerted effort that you have to do this, the more you're going to reap the reward of this should you have to face that. Right. Not knowing what's going to happen. And we can't say that 100% of people are going to get this virus. We won't, but some of us will. Right. And so, and in, and in Italy, just going back to that point real quick, just to close it out, there's a lot of 40-somethings. There's a lot of 40-somethings that are ending up in critical care and requiring um, respirators. So why why do you think that is? Maybe we could just start with that as, again, just context is, you know, usually when we think about people with weakened or comprom- compromised immune systems, you know, all the back of the labels, they all sort of talk to specifically two groups, right? Like children and elderly um, as, uh, as those who are potentially more susceptible. So why do you think in this instance, I mean, this is another virus, we've dealt with plenty of viruses, but why do you think it's targeting mainly elderly and not children? Yeah. And also, why do you think it's targeting the 40, the slightly you know, younger generation? So that's, that's a million dollar question that we don't yeah. have a great answer to. I think that we understand why it's targeting the elderly and particularly the ones that have um, concurrent medical conditions like lung conditions or heart conditions. 
you know, if you look in Italy, what's happening and the mortality rate, it is substantially higher among men. And part of the reason why has to do with tobacco use. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're a smoker, like I would tell you right now, how's the time? Like if, if at any point in your life, this is the time to be quitting. Right. So now why is it targeting 40 somethings? I can't, it's hard to really know why that would be like specifically that demographic. Why would it not be 30 somethings? Why would it not be 20 somethings? I don't have a great answer to that question. Now with regard to children, um, there, it does appear that at a certain point, children are very safe. Um, there are no reported deaths in children under age 10, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. But Actually, and this is not meant to be um, alarming because I imagine you got a lot of young moms who listen to this. So, um, but just being real about what we're seeing in terms of the data, children that are less than one are still at very high risk for severe disease. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, there have not been any deaths yet of children less than one. I think the reason why that is is because major hospitals have a neonatal intensive care unit. They have a NICU. Mm-hmm. The NICU is designed to take care of children if they need that level of intensity of care, like a respirator or something like that. There's only so many children on the planet right now that are less than one year old. Meanwhile, there is, you know, there's 7 billion people on this planet, most of which are adults. And we're the ones who are going to overwhelm the, intent, the adult intensive care units because we just don't have enough beds and enough respirators. So there's, it feels like there's enough beds and respirators for the, these less than one-year-olds. But that's the problem that we have with this virus is that the adult population, if not properly managed, can very easily overwhelm our healthcare system. Right. Well, I was wondering if the 40-something in particular uh, demo has maybe to do with the fact that A, they're the ones who um, are potentially in contact with their own parents who are older and therefore more susceptible and maybe contracting it from them, passing it back and forth. And also, you know, like anybody else was a couple of weeks ago, we were all pretty cavalier thinking like, oh, this is something that like someone else needs to worry about, but not us and walking around carrying and sometimes even already sick with no symptoms and I, I don't know, I would just wonder if maybe it has to do with like that particular kind of bridging that generational gap and, and more contact with people who are even older. Well, I think all, all, all of us are um, vulnerable and susceptible to contracting the virus, you know, and that's the reality. And it's not targeting specific demographics. It's just that specific demographics who contract the virus are more likely to have severe disease. Mm-hmm. So, and globally speaking, across all populations, we, it, it feels like... So right now, what you hear out there is that 80% of people have very little symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's so reassuring and great, but you have to understand that, believe it or not, that's actually what makes this dangerous. Right. Yeah. That's actually because we're spreading it without realizing it. We have no idea. We have no idea. There are people who are out there, you know, basically kicking the virus to others. And it's not just spread when you're symptomatic. And it's not just spread by a cough. It's literally spread by like, we, if you and I were in a room together and we were hanging out, I just need, if I had the virus and I'm breathing in your vicinity, you could potentially contract it. Right. Can we, can we just maybe start then with talking um, about immunity? And since the, you know, the million dollar question right now seems to be, how can we support our immune system? Where does our immune system live? Right. Um, and, and yeah, and to your point earlier, you know, you can't supplement your way out of a shitty diet to build your immune system. So, yeah, how do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, and that's the point. I think the supplements are relevant, but it's about the, the totality, the entire, the entire broad picture of what you do to take care of your body. And so that's, and that's what we need right now. And if you ask the question, okay, if, if the immune system is what we're trying to optimize, where is it? Like, where does the immune system exist? Is it just completely dispersed throughout the entire body everywhere? The answer is no, actually, it's quite concentrated. And it happens to be concentrated in the exact same place where you find your gut microbiome. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. And if you look at these two things, the gut microbiome and the immune system, let me just, I guess, define the microbiome for a moment real quick. 
Mm-hmm. And also, and before you define it, can we just point out that this is like a very relatively new discovery, right? I mean, how long have we known that you know the microbiome is basically responsible? It's all sort of stored there. I mean, isn't isn't that pretty new information? Well, I, I think that what's happening now, so there is a ton of new information. You have to understand that if you went back to 2006, we did not have the ability to study the microbiome because we could not grow the bacteria in a culture plate, mm-hmm. which was the only way for us to identify them. So, and it was, it was advances in technology and laboratory testing that allowed us for the first time in 2006 to open up, you know, into the space and start to say, oh my gosh, what's going on in there? Yeah. And what we discovered almost immediately, we, we went from thinking there were 200 different species of bacteria. By the way, bacteria make up the predominant majority of your microbiome. We went from thinking there were 200 species that can live in cohabitation with humans up to like instantly 15,000 and estimates that there are as many as 36,000 different species throughout the world. And so we discover all of this at once. And now we're in the process of unpacking that and trying to understand what is real, how do we manipulate it, how can we, how can we use this information specifically with disease to change disease outcomes. That's what we're really where we're at at this point. Now, when it comes to the immune system, uh, let me say that the microbiome, start with the word microbe. It's this living creature. You can't see it. So like we're humans. So if we, if we don't see something, then we don't take it seriously. But it's as alive as you and I are. And the number is quite astronomical. There's 39 trillion of them. 39 trillion. So what, what is that number like? Take literally all the stars in our solar system in the Milky Way. Take all of them. You would need 100 Milky Ways to equal the same number of microbes that live inside of you. And our microbiome is a part of who we are. It's on all external structures, um, all external structures. So from the top of our head down to the tip of our toes, it's in our nose, in our mouth, in a woman's vagina. And I said it's on all external structures. And yet the like most concentrated spot is the gut by far. By far, and specifically the large intestine, which I also sometimes refer to as the colon. So external facing structures, that's kind of weird because the gut is like the deepest part of our body. But believe it or not, the gut is actually an external facing structure. That is where we interact with our environment. The food that we put into our mouth goes down and passes through this tube. and the tu- So the tube is an, an external facing structure and the, that food goes, goes down and it interacts with our gut microbes. This is why diet is so critically important because the food that you eat determines the makeup of the microbes that you have. Mm -hmm. And the makeup of your microbes determine what they're capable of doing or not doing for you from a health perspective. And when you look at it in terms of the immune system, there's there's the gut microbes inside the tube And there's a single layer of cells that's like literally smaller than one hair off the top of my head. There's a single layer of cells. And on the other layer of cells, on on the other side of that layer, is 70% of the immune system. And it lives right there. And so when you think about this, they are in constant communication with each other. They rely on each other. And in a way, the gut and the gut microbes act as programmers. For the immune system. And when the gut is optimal, the immune system is optimal. And when the gut is damaged, the immune system can be damaged too. Mm-hmm. And this is the reason why we see we see a myriad, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, like 40 or 50 different disease states that are allergic or autoimmune or immune-mediated, asthma, seasonal allergies. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, celiac. Also, of course, I keep going. Like, there's a bazillion of them. And these are all these are all immune mediated conditions, like allergic or autoimmune conditions. And every single one of them, when you go back and you study the gut, what you find is you find damage to the gut. And the question then becomes: Well, is it 
just kind of guilty by association? Or are they just kind of together? Meaning, oh, you have this disease and because of that, it changes what your gut looks like. Or is the gut actually causing the disease? That's the question that we ask, right? And to answer that question, they did a fascinating study where they took a bunch of newborns who are three months old. This is, I'm, this is real. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is literally what the study showed. They took newborns that were three months old and they found that there was a, a microbiome signature. They took stool specimens from their diaper and they analyzed them and they found that there was a microbiome signature that they could identify that predicted who was going to develop asthma years later. These Mm. kids are three months old. Wow. And so to prove that this was causation and not just association, because that's what everyone says. They're like, oh, it's just association. To prove that it was actually the microbiome that was triggering the onset of asthma, here's what they did. They took stool specimens, again, from these three-month-old diaper. And they transferred it into mice. And what happened to the mice? So they did basically a fecal transplant. They took the poop from the kid, put it into a mouse. What happened to the mouse? It got asthma. So it shows you the intensity and the power of this connection between the gut and the immune system. And I guess the point being, if you want to optimize your immune system, you should be optimizing your gut, which is literally what my entire book is about. It's about optimization of the gut. Okay, going back to those babies for one minute. Three months old, you're either taking formula or breast milk, right? Were all of the three month, were they all consuming either breast milk or were they all on formula or what was the, I mean, because we're talking about what you, what you eat directly affecting your, your gut and your microbiome. So like, what, how, how, was it? So they, so not, not every single one of these children had the microbiome signature that produced asthma. Okay. So there were specific ones. Now I, I don't believe that they looked at whether these children were formula fed or breastfed, but what you're asking me is a very relevant question to this topic because when you look at children, okay, let's zoom out for a moment. And look at the formation of the microbiome in a newborn. The day that a child is born is the most sterile their gut will ever be. It's not totally sterile, but it's the closest that it will ever be to sterile. And then what happens is they start to populate their gut over the course of time. And by the time they are two to three years of age, they will have a fully formed adult-sized microbiome. They're a little tyke. My son is three years old. They're a little tyke but their microbiome is as big as that, okay? Fully formed. And it creates this very vulnerable phase because this is the critical time for the development of the microbiome and the critical time for the development of the relationship between the microbiome and the immune system. And if you disrupt this development, then you have the potential to also disrupt the immune system. And what you're asking or what you're, what you're pointing out is very relevant because there have been numerous studies where they've looked at breastfed children versus formula-fed children. And what they find is that breastfed children are clear-cut at decreased risk of developing asthma. Guess what? They're also at less, less risk for being obese. They're also at less risk for type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And you can go down the line and what you see is that when you disrupt that normal gut development the way that nature intended it, you have the potential to set someone up for issues later on in life. This also applies to C-section versus vaginal delivery. Yeah. Yep. And this also applies to antibiotics. Now, let me say, like I would imagine, I've already said this once, that a lot of your, many of your listeners are young moms, I would imagine. And I want to tell you right now, don't freak out. Okay, because my kids, both of them, I have two, were both born by C-section. We didn't want it to be that way. It was not an elective choice. It had to be that way. We had no choice. Did you do the swab? So we didn't do the swab. We did not do the swab. But Can you explain the swab for people who don't know what that is? Sure. So the swab is, is an idea that essentially what you do is you take a swab, like a cotton swab, and you get some of the 
uh, juices or liquid from mom's vagina. And then you would then apply that to the child. And there's different ideas or protocols. I mean, you could essentially just make it up if you wanted to. But, you know, what you're trying to recreate with swab is idea that the child is meant to pass through the birth canal. Mm -hmm. And as the child passes through the birth canal, they're picking up mom's microbes. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what we worry is the problem with doing the C-section is that you're, you're basically taking away that opportunity, which is essentially the first major presentation of probiotics. Mom's basically handing probiotics to the child. So, so why did you guys not do it just out of curiosity? Well, we didn't have a choice. No, why did you not do the swab? Oh, the swab? Um, okay, so... And it's none of my business, by the way. I know it's a personal question. Well, no, that's not- only been very recently made available. It's, it's not. It's not a personal question. It's. Um, it's a question of where do we stand in 2020 with science versus trend. Mm-hmm. So it has been trendy for years. I mean, my daughter. My daughter was born in 2014. This idea was already trendy in 2014, and then here we are six years later. The um, the issue is that we don't have any study that says that that's actually going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That I'm aware of today. And what we also have is some concern that you could actually transmit infection. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it, it, it's a personal choice. I certainly would not like um, uh, give a tough time to someone who chose to do that. And I want to try to talk them out of it. I, I feel like it's a pretty six of one, half dozen of the other. Mm-hmm. But in the absence of any data to suggest that it actually does make a difference, then you're making a choice based upon the intuitive concept, thinking that this will do something, but yet we do have we do have data that there's risk. Right. And so, so to me, it was why take the risk. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, I had one, I had a little surf and turf, so I had a C-section and just vaginal birth. So I have my little control group, and then I have so I'm really just monitoring both of them and placing my bets on the vaginal birth in terms of long-term health. But I guess only in time also. Yeah, there's so many factors. There's so many factors. So my wife, like I want to give my wife a shout out and huge credit because she was very committed to breastfeeding. And let me say that breastfeeding is like, I remember how stressful it was for us in the very beginning when it didn't get off the ground easily. And so it can be very hard if it doesn't work. So I don't want people to feel bad if they're not capable of doing this. Yeah. But my wife um, breastfed both of our children for two years each. And I think it's kind of cool because, well, so breast milk, let's start with that and talk about that for a moment. It's actually quite fascinating. I am convinced that that is like the perfect food. And what's unique about it is that, and I find this, this is like mind blowing to me. It comes from a human. It has tons of nutrition for the child, but it also has this thing called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. And HMOs literally have zero nutritional value to a child. Literally zero. Zero calories. It doesn't do anything. It goes in the mouth and it comes out the other end. So what are these human milk oligosaccharides that we evolved to have and of which there, we now have realized there's at least 200 of them, 200 different types. What are they? It's actually a form of fiber. Hmm. It's actually a form of fiber. And you know what it does? It feeds the microbiome. So these human milk oligosaccharides, we evolved to actually nurture the relationship with our gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. And mom's breast milk evolved to have something in it that has no value to the son or to the, or to the daughter, but does to these microbes because it's fiber. And I guess we should just say right now, like, you know, I said fiber is fuel. This is an example. Okay. Because what happens with the fiber it passes through the small intestine, which by the way, in a child, it's very short, but in an adult, it's like 10 or 15 feet long. Mm-hmm. passes all the way through the small intestine, untouched, unchanged. It cannot be digested by a human. And it gets down to the colon, and when it arrives there, the microbes, where I said this is where they're concentrated, they get into a feeding frenzy. Mm-hmm. And they chow down on this fiber. The fiber does not actually just pass out the other ends because the microbes consume it. They multiply, they grow. They get stronger and then they reward us. So you are selecting with your dietary choice, whether it's human breast milk or whether it's eating a salad, you are selecting for certain bacteria that thrive on that particular food. 
In the case of human breast milk, it's called bifidobacteria. And bifidobacteria are universally accepted as being healthy. And so these bifidobacteria consume the HMOs, the human milk oligosaccharides. And then what do they do? They actually turn around and they reward us. And the way that they reward us is by releasing something called short-chain fatty acids, which I actually think is the like coolest thing in all of nutrition, yet no one is talking about it, and I don't know why. And that's why I wrote an entire chapter in FiberFueled about short-chain fatty acids, because the power is insane. They immediately heal the gut. They heal the gut. They reverse leaky gut. They prevent colon cancer, lower cholesterol. It, they reverse type 2 diabetes. They spread throughout the entire body and have an anti-inflammatory property throughout the entire body. They optimize the immune system. Guys, where can we get these short-chain fatty acids? I was, was going to say, do they exist anywhere besides, or is fiber the main source of the SCFAs or do you get them elsewhere? Fiber is the source. Okay. Fiber is the source. Now, not all fiber will produce short-chain fatty acids. Fiber is a little bit of a complex topic. I want people who are listening to this to take what they think they know or have learned about fiber and like erase it from the data bank for a moment. And let's just start over. Fiber is the part is a part of a plant. Plants are where you'll find them uh, or find fiber, and plants have a monopoly on these molecules. It's a part of the structure. And we talk about roughage, like the roughage of a plant, you know, when you eat it. That what that is is insoluble fiber. Um, so insoluble fiber is not the kind of fiber that I'm talking about that feeds these microbes. What I'm talking about is soluble fiber, which means that hypothetically, if you put it into a glass of water and you stirred it up, it would dissolve completely. And soluble fiber, we use a word, prebiotic, mm-hmm. as opposed to probiotic. Everyone's heard of probiotics, which are like the living microbes and you take a pill and it helps you poop or whatever. Prebiotic is way more powerful from my perspective because prebiotic is the fiber that feeds the microbiome. So no matter who you are, if I give you a prebiotic, it can change your microbiome in a better way and you get the release of these short-chain fatty acids. So why have we all been focusing on probiotics? Like, In your opinion, we should all be taking a prebiotic. If we had the choice to take one, would it be pre and not pro? So what, so the reason why have we been focusing on probiotics? Because studies that don't have a champion bringing them into a doctor's office fall on deaf ears. And probiotics that can be made for like less than a dollar a box and sold for $40 a month have a champion that is marketing them directly to you. Right. And those marketing techniques are incredibly powerful. Now, do not get me wrong. I'm not saying that probiotics are worthless. I'm not saying they're worthless. I use them all the time in my clinic. I'm a gastroenterologist. What I'm saying to you is there's a hierarchy. There's a, there's a priority. And this is the priority that I use in my own practice. Number one is diet. You can't overcome a bad diet. These things are not, I mean, they'll, they'll help. But you can't radically change. Yeah, you're not going to radically change with a bad diet. So, so diet comes first. Number two is prebiotics. Number two is prebiotics, and number three is probiotics. And can you, so I mean, you're going to speak more about prebiotics, but are they, I mean, they're obviously available most directly and immediately through food rather than supplement, right? I mean, your recommendation would always be to get it through food as opposed to um, taking a pill. That's the, that's the preference. Now, I will tell you, um, and I want to elaborate on that. It's a great question. I, w- I want to elaborate on that a little bit. Um, but before I go there real quick, let me say, I have people come into my practice. I'm, I'm a gastroenterologist. They need help. Whether it's acid reflux, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, whatever it may be. They can have irritable bowel. They can have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, whatever it may be. These are people who need to heal their gut. And the quickest easiest thing because to get a human to change their diet is not easy to get a person to take a prebiotic which is a powder and put it in their cup of coffee in the morning is easy right and i can get my patients to do that and i do get good results in terms of reversing disease by starting my patients on a prebiotic supplement but at the end of the day 
you're absolutely right. It needs to start with diet. Every single plant food, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes, every single one has its own unique blend of fiber. Fiber, you know, I talked about soluble versus insoluble. You have to understand, like, these are super broad categories. Mm-hmm. We don't even know how many types of fiber exist. It's such a complex, complex family of molecules. There are at least millions of types of fiber in nature. And the reason why I say that is, believe it or not, this sounds a little crazy. There's 300,000 edible plants on our planet. 300,000. Now, most of us in our lifetime will have 50 or less. Right. So we're not even touching the diversity and the, the, the variety that exists out there. Every single plant has its own unique blend of fiber. And here's what's cool. And this is, a, this is actually a really critical point for gut health. Every single plant is going to support different species of microbes. So when you eat that plant, let's pretend that it's kale. All right. You eat kale. Certain species are going to thrive on eating kale. But the species that don't feast on that kind of fiber, they're going to start to recede because all you're eating is kale. But then what happens when you bring in walnuts or you bring in this or you bring in that? And the more that you learn about this, the more that you realize that variety becomes actually critically important because variety in your diet translates to variety in your microbiome. And variety in your microbiome is another way of saying diversity. And diversity is a sign of health within your gut. The more diverse your microbiome, the healthier your microbiome is which is an interesting concept because your microbiome is an ecosystem, like a rainforest. And biodiversity in any ecosystem is a sign of health. And when we destroy biodiversity, whether it's on mass scale, like our our globe, you know, our planet, or whether it's on small scale, like our gut, when you you erode biodiversity, you see um, the emergence of instability. And instability in the gut is when disease shows up. Right. Soluble versus insoluble fiber, we're supposed to be getting both. Are we supposed to get a certain ratio of one to the other? Um, I mean, soluble, it sounds like, is where you're feeling, where you're saying that the benefit really lies. But how do we, like, how does the lay person understand what they should and shouldn't eat looking at understanding fiber? Okay. So it's a really good question. And I think this is important because we have basically been trained in the last 10 or 15 years by many of the diets that have become popular to like expect complexity. Okay. So like, do we weigh our food? What are the macros? How many calories? Am I in a calorie deficit? And we've gotten so crazy with it all. And in my book, there is one rule, one rule only, and it's incredibly simple. Diversity of plants. That's it. Stop counting grams of fiber. Right. I, don't count, I don't count grams of fiber. All right? Don't worry about soluble versus insoluble. Instead, take this simple idea, diversity of plants. When you go to the supermarket, look for more diversity. Grab something you haven't never had before. Just throw it in the basket and see what the hell comes up when you get home with a recipe. And the same is true when you're at the salad bar. It's like when I make my salads, if it's a plant, it goes in my salad. And the story, that's it. It's that simple. And where does this idea of diversity of plants come from? Why did I make this the golden rule? I made it the golden rule because the, the, I'm a very, I'm a science guy. I can't help it. I'm a science guy. I want the science to be there. If the science is not there, I'm not in. And the biggest study to date to correlate or connect our diet and lifestyle to the health of our gut, it's called the American Gut Project. And they ran an analysis and like, this is, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, like, they're not, they don't have some sort of dog in the fight. This is not a diet war thing, even though that's what happens on the internet. <laughs> they, um, they ran an analysis with 11,000 different people from around the world, 15,000 specimens. It's the largest study that they do this. And there was one factor that jumped out above all else by far as being the number one predictor of a healthy gut. More important than being vegan, by the way. Mm-hmm. And this was the number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of plants in your diet. Mm-hmm. So it's scientifically validated. 
And when you start to think about how it works, when you start to break down the microbiome science like I do in the book Fiber Fueled, you start to see, oh my gosh, it makes so sense, so much sense. And it's so simple. It's so simple. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Mm-hmm. And you know, a big thing for me with this book is I'm not here to sell you a vegan diet. Veganism is an ethic. Veganism is concern for animal welfare, concern for the environment. Those are beautiful things. Those are beautiful things, and we should all think about how we feel about that. I'm talking about nutrition. I'm talking about human nutrition, period, in a tunnel. And what is the optimal diet for human health? In the United States right now, we are 10% fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. 10%. Unbelievable. We are 60% processed food, which is like Frankenstein stuff. And we are 30% meat and dairy, and it's cruddy meat and dairy. And it's like more than anyone in the world, you know, more than anyone in the world. We eat like 30 times more of that than people in India do, right? And so what do we need to do? It's very simple. We got to move the needle. We got to take that 10% and we got to move the needle. And so my book is about meeting you where you are. If If you have a normal diet, that was me just a few years ago. Let's try to get you to 30%. Okay. Here's my question. Yeah. Okay. So I get the idea. I get this idea of like, yes, if you want to invite more species to come up into your gut, like put more things on the menu. Like if you want more customers, have a greater, greater, more menu option. It makes total sense. I get that, you know, we were healthier probably when we were foragers. We had more variety than when we domesticated wheat and that really screwed us all up. But, um, what about these cultures that are extraordinarily healthy? I'm obviously not talking about Americans, but they have very little variety in their diet. So when you think about, I, I don't know if I, you know, even my relatives, right? Like they're my, I'm um, half Greek. My dad's from uh, one of the blue zones, actually. You know, they have the same, like their diet is very healthy, but it's also very limited. Like they eat... <laughs> kind of the same things every day. And I think, you know, even when I'm traveling to other countries, like if I'm in Southeast Asia, like I'm eating, like every day I'm eating like one of three or four different varieties of curry. There's just not a lot of diversity, yet they seem to be thriving health-wise. So what is like, how do you reconcile that? So if you look, let's take uh, Italy, for example. Okay, so Sardinia is one of the blue zones. Italy is a Mediterranean country. And they did a study where they compared the gut microbiome, the diversity of the gut microbiome, to, um, from Europeans in Italy to people who are uh, tribal hunters and gatherers that live in Tanzania. So there's this tribe, they're quite fascinating, and unfortunately they're going away very soon, called the Hadza, H-A-D-Z-A. And the Hadza, you know, the problem is like the younger uh, tribe members are deciding to bail on the tribe so that they can like integrate into society and get a cell phone and stuff like that. So, but they're interesting to study because they, they don't have any agriculture. They don't have any agriculture. They're, they're, they're foragers and also hunters. And when they've studied their microbiome, what they find is that they have 30% more diversity than Europeans. They have 40% more diversity than Americans do. And where does that come from? And they, when they have looked in greater detail at their diet, the average person in this tribe is consuming more than 100 grams of fiber per day. The average person in the United States is 15. Like we do, we do um, studies, and one of the ways that we will study something, if you want to study fiber, the way you set the study up is you go like this. You get a big group of people. And you say, I want to compare the high fiber consumers to the low fiber consumers. You take the two extremes. So I'm going to take the top 20% of fiber consumers and the, tip and the bottom 25% of fiber consumers. I'm going to compare them to each other. Check out these studies. I mean, I'm not going to like tell you that you have to go and do this as homework. But if you look at these studies in the United States, the high fiber consumers don't even get the minimum daily standard of fiber. Yeah. What is the daily standard like, in America? 25 grams for women and 38 for men. Is, is the is the accepted standard, and that's that's the minimal amount. That's the minimum, right? That's the minimum, and the average person in the United States is fifteen. Ninety-seven percent of us don't get enough fiber, and I'm I'm telling you how important this is to human health. 
97% of us don't even get this minimal amount of fiber. Meanwhile, here's this native tribe that they're foraging, they're, they're living off the land, they have 40% more microbes right off the bat. Probably in their soil too, right? I mean, so, and then the other thing that's interesting is the diversity of plants in their diet. So they decided to count how many plant species are they eating? So I told you before, like, like, let me, I'm curious, Zoe, just out of curiosity, like, give me an estimate off the top of your head, whatever is the number that comes to mind. How many, how many plants do you think you actually have in your diet? On a regular basis, probably like 40, 30. That's pretty good. Erica, any thoughts? I was going to say about 30, just as a wild guess. 30, so if you get 30 in a week, that's actually pretty good. About fruits or just plants? Unique, unique plants. Unique plants. Okay, so yes, excluding fruits, I would say about like 30 to 40. No, Wait, fruits why are we excluding fruits? Fruit? Oh, sorry, we are including fruit. Yeah, we're including fruit. And I'm probably around 40. Yeah, I think a bit higher. <laughs> All right. So if you guys are getting more than 30 in a week, you're doing great. All right. Well, we're also, you know, the ones very who focused. focused on it, we're the exception. Yeah, you're very health focused. Yeah, no, I love that. And if you're doing more than 30 in a week, you're doing great. Okay. That's by American standards. When they studied the Hudson, they were getting 600 varieties of plants in their diet. Unbelievable. Because they don't go to the supermarket and eat what our food system throws in front of us. They're just foraging and they're eating whatever the land provides. 100 grams of fiber a day. A lot of it like chewing on roots mm-hmm. or in there, whatever. And 600 varieties of plants. And they're hunters. Like They're not eating a, a vegan diet or anything like that. They're eating meat. But they have a microbiome that, by all measures, is much more healthy. And it's interesting because there are scientists who basically have started to collect samples from tribes like this and other tribes from around the world. And they're, and they're basically stockpiling it and, and hiding it almost as like a doomsday thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, because they're worried that we're destroying our guts so bad. Better start the defroster pretty soon. Yeah. Wait, so here's my question. Now, speaking of the meat, and there's clearly, there, there is no fiber in meat, but so what is your position on meat? And, and, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to use kid gloves here. If you think that it's absolutely the wrong choice for people to eat meat from a, this is also from a nutritional standpoint, right? I'm not asking to fold in the other variables, like, you know, environmental reasons or ethical reasons. I think oh, yeah. no, just totally. from a nutritional standpoint, like what is your stance on meat or animal yeah. in general? Well, to me, it's, it's not even what is my stance. It's like just flat out, what is the science saying? What is the science saying? And so th- there was actually a study that they did um, that I find to be fascinating. One of, my, one of my two favorites, published in Nature in 2014. Okay, Nature is literally the top scientific journal in the world. They publish only the best studies. 2014, um, the author was Lawrence David, who's from Duke. And they also had this guy, Peter Turnbaugh, who's a very famous microbiome researcher from UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And this was not meant to be vegan versus carnivore or keto or anything like that. Okay. This was guys who are trying to push forward the science and trying to ask a very legitimate question. Up to this point in 2014, we had seen in animals that diet can manipulate the microbiome. But an animal is much more simple and easier to manipulate than us. We're more complicated. So the question was, can we change a person's microbiome radically with their diet? So they put them on four opposite diets. 100% plant-based. That's it. 100% plant-based versus 100% animal product. Meat, eggs, dairy. And when they did this, what they saw, number one on both diets, because every person did both and they monitored their microbiome every single day. So five days of each. Within 24 hours, your microbiome changes. The food that you had this morning is already having an effect on your microbiome. Okay. On the plant-based diet, they saw the emergence of microbes similar to what we talked about before with the breast milk. Anti-inflammatory microbes that thrive on fiber and are designed to produce short-chain fatty acids. They also saw that there was the production of short-chain fatty acids. No surprise. You eat fiber in your diet, you're going to get them. They'll come. The flip side, when you eat the diet that was high on the, um, that was 100% animal products, meat, dairy, and eggs, five days, very rapid, the emergence of a family of microbes that we call bile-tolerant. These are widely accepted by scientists as being inflammatory. 
They are known to take bile. Bile is the juice that comes from our liver that helps us to basically absorb fat. It's a normal part of human digestion. When you eat a high-fat diet, you get more of this juice. And what you create, believe it or not, is that actually changes the microbiome because your microbiome needs to be able to survive in this environment. The bile gets converted by these microbes, bile-tolerant microbes, into what are called secondary bile salts. Secondary bile salts have been clearly associated with colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Clear-cut association with colon cancer. And the, one of the microbes that emerged is called Bilophila wadsworthia. Bio- <laughs> Steve. Like a cartoon character, like Wadsworth. <laughs> yeah. Bilophila Wadsworth. Nice, I like that. Um, Bilophila Wadsworthia. So th- this microbe is not one that you want. It is very strongly associated with the development of inflammatory bowel disease, meaning Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So in literally just five days on this diet, you are seeing changes in the microbiome that would suggest increased risk of developing colon cancer, increased risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. And then the third thing that happened is that, believe it or not, they saw on this diet specifically that they developed antibiotic resistance in their gut within five days, Uh which is very disturbing. And you say, well, why would that happen? That has nothing to do with the actual meat, right? But where does 80% of the antibiotic use in the United States go? Uh, into the meat. Yep. So that's, and so that's the issue is that there clearly are antibiotic residues that are still there in the meat. So the, the point from my perspective is this. Do I, do I believe that you can be healthy and consume meat? Yes. Yes, absolutely. If what? If you eat it different than the way we currently do it. I think that it should be better sourced. I think it should be better sourced. I think that there is a hierarchy to meat. Okay. Just like there's a hierarchy to most things in life. So wild caught salmon is a hell of a lot healthier than like cold cuts. Right. And cold cuts are at the bottom and red meat is just above that. And so this is why I think it's so important. And it's one thing that I would just mention real quick. I'm not claiming that this is like, you know, um, I hear people making claims with coronavirus that are like, you know, hey, this one simple thing is going to save your life. No, I think that the answer is this. You want to optimize your body. You want to optimize your body. In a perfect world, you don't want to get it. And that's where social distancing comes into play. But if you do get it, you want to have your immune system optimized. And there were two studies looking at a high fiber diet now, you can't do this in humans because we can't ethically infect a person with these viruses, right? So in animal models, they studied a high-fiber diet in influenza. Half the animals got high-fiber, the other half got low-fiber. The ones that got the high-fiber diet, they lived longer, the disease was less severe, and their lung function was better throughout the entire process. The investigators asked the question, why was that? What was it about the high-fiber diet that was so special and so unique protected them? The answer, we've already said a couple times, short-chain fatty acids. When they, <laughs> when they studied this, they found that it was the short-chain fatty acids that optimized the immune system. The key being that the parts of the immune system that you need to fight the virus, the CD8 cells, you got more of those in play to control the virus. And then the rest of the immune system that you're trying to avoid the cytokine storm, the short-chain fatty acids actually help the rest of the immune system cool off and chill out. And so that is true optimization because it's turning it up in the right spots and turning it down in the others. Well, so it seems like a pretty easy, it's not a solution, but I mean, it can't hurt anybody to just at least give it a try and get on the road. I mean, that's basically what we're saying here. Like exactly. Your point, there's no easy fix, but if you can actually build yourself a little suit of armor, then why would you not? Exactly. Fortify the gut. When you fortify the gut, it protects you because your immune system gets strong. Good strategy. I like it. Good stuff, Dr. B. Let me go put on my face mask and go to the grocery store now. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, okay, well, you have to promise to come back and talk about all this other stuff because there's just so much more to dig into. I look forward to the day where the sun is shining and we can walk through the streets of Brooklyn and into a studio and drink rosé while we record an episode. That sounds... Oh my God, that sounds perfect. so fun. I'll see you in 2022. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right, well, take care and be safe and go get the afternoon snack time that you're being commanded to serve. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.